Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the editor of Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. Each week, we bring you the most interesting stories from the world's capital markets for your week ahead. We have a new episode out free every Friday, so search for Global Capital on your favourite podcast platform and subscribe. And you can read more on all the stories we discuss on the podcast at globalcapital.com. Now, later on, John and I will be talking to our equities editor, Aidan Gregory, about how capital markets are helping, in some cases, and not in others, with the green transition. But first, we need to talk about the horror show that was the primary bond market this week and the art of the pulled deal. Um, John, tell us about pulled deals. Well, um, yeah, a pulled deal uh, just basically means one that uh, kind of advances towards the market and then is withdrawn. Um, uh, Some people technically would say that it's only pulled if the the bond is actually launched in in the morning with uh, initial price thoughts and, and the book is opened for investors but um and and then it's withdrawn after that but you know some other ones they do marketing um you know in advance of of launch and then you know just sort of decide not to go ahead um but i mean there's just been an incredible number of of these at the moment so i mean in in for for years and years you get like one or two a year of, of this across the whole bond market in in europe and um you know, now we're getting like three or four a week. Yeah, two in the public sector bond market alone, which is pretty much unheard of, isn't it, uh, for a single week? I mean, this is this yeah. is a group of issuers that are generally in the market all the time and know yeah. their market all, almost as well, and in some cases better than the banks advising them do. So which were the ones uh, pulled in public sector, Ralph? Well, having said that, the two issuers uh, that, uh, that availed were uh, a Canadian issuer and uh, Sages, which is the French Strategic Oil Reserve. Uh, and of course, those two issuers are not that frequent in the market and don't have great pedigree. And I think that was possibly uh, something of a uniting theme if we could, there could be said to be one this week with these deals. I mean, obviously, the, the big uniting theme is the fact they're all coming in uh, what are very volatile markets where... Mm. Uh, underlying underlying rates can move up and down 10 basis points in in a matter of hours, uh, which makes it very hard for investors to gauge whether they're getting good value on the bonds and whether they want to be locked in at the price that they're going to ultimately be offered. Um, but nonetheless, you know, there was there were those whose deals we spoke about in the public sector bond market. We also had uh, Close Brothers, a bank in the UK. Um, and there were, as you say, John, uh, some deals that where the investor work had started with a, a roadshow, but then the deal sort of never materialised, which is which is unusual. I mean, you do get non-deal roadshows, as they call them, where issuers go out to market themselves and explain themselves to investors anyway. But more often than not, a roadshow is followed by a deal. Otherwise, why would you undertake the effort of, of the roadshow? And and we saw roadshows from Ubisoft, the software company, and Selenese, which then didn't materialise in anything. Um, one presumes because the market was horrific. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Selenese will come uh, next week. It's a big US chemical company, and it's buying uh, a division of Dupont for <coughs> eleven billion dollars. So they need the money. They need to do it. Um, you know, it'll it'll get done. It's a it's a big it's a big US uh, business. You know. Th- 
you know, it's got to happen, even though it's uh, low triple B rated. Um, but I think that the, the market this week was just terrible. And um, they did their marketing on Monday and Tuesday. And then, you know, Wednesday was pretty bad. I, I think they they could perhaps have had a go on Wednesday, but but they didn't. Um, and, you know, Thursday was was no better and or if anything worse. And plus the U.S. Uh, uh, July the 4th holiday is coming. And, you know, people sort of tend to feel that, um, you know, investors appetite for deals even in the run-up to the holidays, sort of starts to ebb away. Yeah, I, I think the thing about this is, in in more normal times, or well, if you can say any aspect of the capital markets has been normal over the last uh, ten years, compared to you know further back in time, um, there is there is traditionally a sort of element of shame um, over uh, having one's deal pulled. Um, it, it sort of it sort of suggests that uh, either the banks doing the deal or the issuer doing the deal didn't have any degree of certainty as to what they were doing and hadn't read the market well, which is of course what they're being paid to do. Um, but I think you know, with so many deals going wrong at the moment, uh, you can't really can't really sort of lay any blame um, at anyone's door in particular. Uh, certainly, a lot of these issuers have done investor work um, and they've been out on the road and they've they've done everything they probably should have done and they've hired banks in markets um, where those banks are absolute giants. So it's not as if they're, they're hiring, I don't know, let's say a small regional Japanese bank to go and do a deal in Swiss francs for them or anything like yeah. that. You know, there are, there are some big players uh, in the sterling market, the dollar market, the Euro market um, to, to sort of chaperone them through and it's not working. And um, I think when it doesn't work on, on that scale or with the frequency that we saw this week, then you probably just have to say, well, that's just how markets are going to be for a while. And um, yeah, any any sort of uh, embarrassment sort of ebbs away, I guess. Because even even the more established, sorry, even the more established uh, frequent borrowers aren't having a great time. Um, look at German agency KFW, which is in the market all the time. It does about 80 billion euros of bond issuance a year uh, across all sorts of markets. It did a couple of deals this week and they, they, they went fine. They certainly weren't pulled, but they did sort of show in terms of the book size and so on that it's not really an easy market to navigate. Did um, KFW have any advice for other issuers? Uh, yes, they did. They were, they were, they, they spoke to us and uh, told us about the benefits of uh, adding green labels and having investors in place. But, um, you know, borrowers in general are having to rethink how they approach the market uh, with their banks and, I suppose there are there are certain tricks that that work. Um, adding a green label, for example, uh, always helps bring in extra demand from investors that have a mandate to buy green assets. Um, so that's 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 a tried and trusted route for um, adding orders to your deal. Um, but probably at the core of it uh, is is doing that investor work in the first place, not just to market your name, um, but to really get a sense of as much certainty as you can that investors are going to be there for your deal that they're enthusiastic for it and uh, that you've got a good good amount of information about what price you should be bringing it at um and then and then i guess the final piece of that puzzle is is the speed of execution of a deal and that's uh that's about getting in the market in the morning and then trying to get your deal done as quickly as possible so that uh you don't leave as much time for rates or spreads um, in the underlying market to to move against you, 
Yeah, I think that comment sort of works better for the likes of KFW, which frankly is, uh, you know, doesn't have too many worries. It's like almost the, the, the market's favourite borrower. Um, mm -hmm. than it does for a, for a corporate issuer, which um, it can't just say to investors, go, oh, come on, hurry up, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, the book's closing. You know, they, they have to they have to sort of play it carefully and you know sometimes leave the book open a bit longer to get to get more orders in um and you know i mean one technique they use um is is that if they if they get off to a good start with the book building after an hour or two the lead managers will put out a notice saying we've got 1 billion of demand or 2 billion and that reassures the market the investors that are still hesitating know that okay this is not going to be a dreadful deal there's decent demand for it you know it, it's going to go reasonably well and then that often prompts them to uh come in yeah it's a, it's a case of information management i suppose at heart yeah. isn't it which was yeah. how someone once described uh working on a syndicate desk to me that it, you know um that was the real crux of the job was mm. how you manage information that you send to the market um how you manage the information to the issuer and uh, i guess in the run-up to the deal how you engage investors and then keep them engaged and informed and enthused all the way along um it's quite an interesting change uh, in the sense that i feel like we've had years and years of so much central bank buying in some of our markets that any deal has kind of worked on any day before because uh you always knew there were half the deal or some big chunk of the deal was going to go to the european central bank whereas now that's not the case the markets are much more volatile and uh yeah the art of syndication is back yeah, absolutely. Um, one uh, debt capital markets banker said to me that um, right now it feels like we're doing an awful lot of work for very little reward. Uh, but he admitted that, you know, probably there'd been many years when they'd had to, you know, get they probably had lots of reward for not very much work. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of SSA issuers, for example, in particular, made, made that point to us a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's quite believable indeed. Um, now, one other thing uh, to talk about quickly, John, uh, is uh, before we um, get on to green equity capital markets, is is the green and social bond principles. The organisation that looks after what its name suggests it does uh, released its annual update. Um, it didn't make any major changes to its principles, which is good because otherwise they wouldn't really be principles, would they? But it did offer guidance on how to apply them, particularly to securitizations and sustainability-linked bonds. Um, those, those are the bonds where the coupon goes up or down depending on whether the issuer hits or misses certain ESG targets. What, what sort of, what's the flavour of the advice? Is this just sort of helping people apply the principles to what are quite complex products and quite new areas of green finance yeah i think that 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 is that's right that is what's going on i mean i went to the conference of the uh, green and social bond principles as well that they had after their annual general meeting and and it was very much about how uh, these types of labeled finance are spreading out from the original home in sort of you know classical bond markets um, into sort of newer areas, either higher risk, like high yield bonds and emerging markets, or more short term instruments like commercial paper and repos, and uh, also um, into more structured deals like um, securitization. And as it goes into these areas, there are sort of special issues that, that crop up and that need 
the market to think about them and sort of provide guidance about and that's what they've been doing and and they've actually produced a lot of documents this year um that uh, that sort of address all these all these different segments um securitization was a, sort of one of the major ones and you know the big issue there is that a lot of the people who want to do green securitizations or social securitizations don't actually have that many assets um, that are uh, the right sort. And and so they've devised another way of doing these deals, which is um, to sort of say, well, th we're not actually securitizing green or social assets, but we will use the money to originate uh, future ones. Um, so those future ones are never going to actually be part of this securitization because a securitization has to be based on existing assets, but they will be created. Yeah, so the money in investor places will go towards, even though it will be earning coupon from uh, from a non-green asset, at exactly. least it knows that the proceeds it put in were going towards something yeah. Uh, yeah. something a bit greener. Yeah. yeah, okay. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Because, of course, securitization has been uh, a, a, a sort of a big area where there's been a lack of ESG activity and plenty in the market blame blame regulation for that don't they they're um they're, they're quite critical of of being held back from being able to play their part aren't they in the in the ESG transition well I think the securitization market I mean it has had a an awful beating from regulators in Europe since 2008 and uh, but I think sometimes they have just sort of tend to blame regulators for all their problems um but um but i think the um you know i think really a bigger issue is that um the banks have not been using securitization all that much the big the big uh, commercial banks and and mm -hmm. the main users are sort of often you know independent finance companies um and you know they they don't have huge balance sheets they use securitization for a lot of their funding, if not all of it. And so they can only do green deals, really, to the extent that they can generate green assets. And and of course, you know, this is still quite new in, in consumer finance. Um, you know, there are green mortgages, but they're not, you know, not everybody has a green mortgage. Yeah, you kind of feel that if if one of the points of securitization is to get assets off of a bank's or to free up space on a bank's balance sheet, probably the way things are at the moment, the last the last things a bank wants to get rid of from its balance sheet are the are the green loans all over it or things that count as green. So um, perhaps that explains some of the sluggishness for the the big players to to get involved in green securitizations. That's, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. Um, I mean, they will still be able to count the green mortgages they've originated towards their sort of green finance targets, even if they have sold them effectively into a securitization vehicle. But, but you, you know, you may be right that it, that it, that on some of the ratios, it would they would sort of come off. Hmm. Well, for more detail on that story, uh, go to globalcapital.com to read John's story. And uh, in the meantime, we spoke to Aidan Gregory about green equity capital markets. Good morning, Aidan. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Ralph. 
Um, so let's just set the scene. European equity capital markets issuance this year has been been very low, especially compared to last year. Um, you had some data in an article you wrote yesterday. Um, year to date equity capital markets activity uh, stands at $70.3 billion worth year to date. That compares to $195 billion for the same time last year, which was admittedly a blowout year. Um, and take take IPOs, for example, new stock market listings, uh, 28 sorry, $20.8 billion done this year versus $69.3 billion in the same period last year. Um, it's It's been a pretty dreadful quarter, uh, but at least there is some sort of uh, zone of activity, and you've identified that as uh, what we're calling green ECM, so equity equity capital markets raising for companies with a, a green focus. Um Let's, first of all, let's focus on two deals that are perhaps emblematic of where we're at with the market at the moment. Um, the first was Plenitude, which was one of a handful of big IPOs that was supposed to restart the market this year after its awful start. Um, Plenitude was presented as the renewables bit of oil company Eni. Um, and we were told that this was a huge deal of strategic importance to the seller, almost to the point that it was going ahead no matter what. But it didn't turn out that way, did it? No, it didn't. And, um, it, you know, this this deal is a huge part of, of any strategy for the energy transition. Um, it, it makes no sense for, for Plenitude to still remain attached to the rump of Eni's uh, fossil fuel asset. So spinning off the business mm. makes uh, perfect sense. And uh, as you say, we, we were told that it was a deal which had to happen. Um, and, and it still does have to happen. Um, but clearly... Uh, in the end, uh, any felt that the price on offer uh, wasn't particularly palatable. So, so why was that? Because if this is, if this is truly a renewables company with the the pedigree of any behind it, surely it should have flown off the shelves. Well, it has any's uh, renewable assets within it, um, but that isn't the the whole story of the business. Uh, most of Planetude's profits come from uh, gas retail distribution. Uh, business uh, and a lot of that gas does come from from Russia via its parent. Um, so it's not like a kind of straightforward pure play renewables company. Uh, they also operate a network of electric charging vehicles, ele- electric charging points across Italy. It's more of a jumble of different businesses. So, if I'm right, we have a renewable energy company or something badged as a renewable energy company. It comes to the equity market to uh, for a listing. It turns out not to be quite such a straightforward uh, renewable energy company and has a lot of uh, exposure to Russian gas. And, and that's why the deal was pulled, is it? That that sort of level of complexity and uh, not being quite what it cracked up to be. Pretty much. Uh, there was still a path to a deal. Uh, but during the investor education process, um, there were reports in the news that Russia was caught, like re- deliberately reducing the supply of gas to, to Italy and Germany and any uh, disclosed to the market that it was, I think it was only getting about 65% of the gas it asked for uh, at various points in the last few weeks, um, which is pretty much the sort of final nail in the coffin really for the for the IPO. And in the end, they they didn't even get to saying a range. They they postponed the deal. Um, they may try again in the autumn uh, if you know if market conditions are better by then. But Aidan, you said um, a bit earlier that it didn't make sense for the plenitude assets to be within any. So why do you say that? Um, The reason for that is because uh, of its cost of capital. Um, 
the cost of capital for fossil fuels companies to finance themselves is um is is much more expensive than it is for pure renewable companies because they trade renewables companies generally trade on a much higher multiple than than fossil fuel companies and so the argument is that by separating out plenitude it'll have a lower cost of capital and this will help its investment program is that right yeah it will have um by becoming a listed company it will have a currency to pursue its own growth independent of uh, independent of the fossil fuel parent mm, mm. well Plenitude wasn't the only deal. Uh, it wasn't even the only Italian deal or even the only Italian renewable energy deal in the equity markets this week, was it? Um, because there was a deal that did get done from Denora. Um, tell us a bit about that, Aidan. Denora is, um, is nearly 100 years old and it's an Italian industrial company um, which has various businesses, uh, old and new. Um, it specialises in technology for electrolysis um, and that's very important for producing green hydrogen. So the company manufactures components um, which are essential in the production of green hydrogen. Uh, and they also own a stake in ThyssenKrupp Nussera, which is a uh, German uh, industrial conglomerate, ThyssenKrupp's green hydrogen business. And then within that mix, they also have, uh, you know, more, more uh, old, stable and profitable businesses like water filtration and stuff things like you know making things that help clean clean swimming pools um so it's a real sort of jumble of of different assets uh old and, and new and like stable and, and very fast growing in the case of the green hydrogen assets so so what happened did did, did they do their ipo then yes uh, denora managed to get its deal done uh they in the end they went for a heavily discounted valuation because uh, the company just wanted to get get listed and and move on well what sort of valuation did the company get in the end Aiden? and and how did that compare to what it was after in the first place when the ipo was first talked about earlier this year um there were reports that the company was seeking a five billion euro valuation and in the end after they priced the ipo at the bottom of the range earlier this week uh, the company achieved an initial market cap of 2.72 billion euros so you know it's a pretty significant scale back from what was originally talked about Okay, so what do these? I mean, you know, your your argument in your story is that uh, green equity capital markets is is the one sort of area where we could expect some equity market activity. So, where do these two deals leave us, and what's what's to come? Well, I think um, I think renewables has proven itself to be one of the few sectors that where there's still you know paths to to deals getting done at the moment. Uh, the market's been so bad, uh, and yet renewables is this sort of um, you know bright rare bright spot uh, within that um there's a due to everything that's been going on with the war in ukraine and europe's over reliance on on russia for its energy uh, there's obviously a massive need to achieve energy independence and, and renewables are one of the obvious pathways to doing that so it, it's a sector that um you know it needs a huge amount of capital to grow and on the other side of that, it's something which investors themselves are, are very, very keen to, to finance. So are we going to see more deals then, Aidan? So uh, banks across the street expect to be very busy uh, arranging IPOs and share sales on behalf of renewable energy companies as the sector seeks capital to expand on, on projects. Uh, and in fact, this week, uh, OPD Energy, which is a Spanish uh, solar power company, actually uh, resurrected its IPO, um, having failed to come, go public last year. Um, they've now decided that, you know, 
there's a market there's a market for them again and they're seeking to raise 200 million um and having announced their intention to float this week well it'll be interesting to see how that proceeds um but it's not just renewable energy companies catching a bid from investors though is it john uh, you've written a story this week about private funds looking to own all sorts of companies with a green slant uh, but they're investing away from the public markets and in some rather more unglamorous businesses than uh, something as trendy as renewable energy. Yeah, well, some of them are going for renewable energy. Um, and, and, and you know, there's lots of interest definitely in the, in the energy sector for these assets uh, from private funds. But um, but also, uh, you know, there's been a complete rash of of uh, takeover interest in UK bus companies, of all things, and uh, also Biffa, which is um, well known to anyone in the UK as a sort of, uh, you know, waste collection business. Yeah, the uh, the iconic Biffa bins. Um, there's that I mean, we have some examples, don't we? There's a, a Spanish infrastructure group called Globalvia, I think I pronounced that right, which has made a £650 million bid for Go Ahead. Um, and there's there's other deals too. Now, I guess, what are the driving forces here? I mean, I suppose the first uh, obvious one, why the UK? Well, UK assets, I think you make the point in your article, they're, they're cheap. They trade at lower multiples compared to uh, their US peers, for example. And also, uh, the pound is now um, well. It only buys you a dollar twenty-two. Uh, it used to buy a dollar thirty just a few months ago. So um, certainly, certainly, it's a good time to buy, I suppose. But it's something about the way these these companies that are being bought make money, isn't it? That's particularly appealing to these funds. Yeah, they've got um, long-term, sustainable, uh, sort of reliable cash flows, and you know they. W- if you're a bus company or a train company, you have a franchise uh, that you know generally lasts for years, and and you're it's a sort of near monopoly in a, in a local area, um, and you know waste collection is similar. They're they're you know contracts of um, anything from sort of one to three or or even you know five to seven years, and and these sort of stable revenues are exactly what infrastructure funds like even though these businesses are not infrastructure in the conventional sense, in that they're not based on sort of physical assets that are stuck in one place. It reminds me of the uh, famous saying um, from Darts, which is uh, it's trebles, trebles for show, doubles for the dough. Uh, if I think of what equity investors <laughs> like to buy, you know, they're like growth and multiples yeah. and uh, things that grow exponentially. They, but, you know, you can't beat a government contract for a steady, steady cash flow, can you? Absolutely. And uh, um, yeah, so, I mean, th- these businesses are, the, you know, many of them are listed in the stock market um that they've done they've done you know quite well on the whole at, at sort of uh, producing revenue for investors but you know there've been a few problems for some of them like um in the rail sector in particular um it tends to be very fraught you we, anyone in britain knows that there are constant scandals about you know uh, commuters trains being delayed and so on and and you know some of the rail operators have had certain regional franchises taken away from them and and this tends to sort of weigh on the share price. Um, there's also a, a bit of a difficulty with, you know, those that have big US businesses. Um, you know, it's not clear that UK based investors really understand those or, or value them as as sort of optimistically as as US investors would. Um, but yeah. but overall, um, 
the these sort of stable long-term cash flows are just valued more highly by private funds um and and you know there are several reasons for that and it and it becomes particularly important um when we think about the energy transition yeah what is it that makes them such a suitable type of investor rather than um say a a, your generic public shareholder um I guess in terms of things like buses, and we're talking about the energy transition, and I guess that means the switch to electric vehicles, I guess it means because there's a lot of long-term investment to be done over a long period of time, which is not necessarily the sort of thing that a public company that reports quarterly is necessarily all that enthusiastic about. Is that is that a fair summary? That's right. I mean, I think the, you know, the public equity investors, they buy into the energy transition. They, they're looking for that so do the managements of these companies everyone can see which way things are going but the you know when it comes to the actual amounts of spending that have got to be done um you know there are there's a strong feeling that private funds are better placed to take it on and if you think about a bus company um you know that is meant you, you know it's not it's not terribly exciting or sort of you know good at handling dramatic change but what they've got to do is really replace their whole fleets with brand new electric buses which you know just didn't exist a few years ago and um, that's a huge amount of capital investment Um, the payback will come over a long time because the buses will operate for 10 or 20 years and um, you know gradually repay the investment and and that sort of profile of high capital need um it, it, it is exactly what these infrastructure funds are looking for um, because they've got, you know, plenty of capital. They've got um, the way they work is they get commitments up front from pension funds and, um, uh, in, you know, other institutions like insurance companies. Some of them actually are pension funds that, that invest, uh, you know, directly in their own names uh, in these sorts of businesses. And, and then they just got to find homes for that capital where they can put it to work for a return. Um, and that's a bit different from a public equity fund where, um, you know, the capital comes in sort of more gradually and it has to be very diversified in how it's put to work. What does this tell us then about how the capital markets finance the green transition overall if on the one hand we have all these renewable companies uh that i guess are either forced or want to come to the equity markets first and foremost um versus these long established businesses that aren't necessarily green in and of themselves but are making a move to be more green or will somehow otherwise help out with the green transition that they all they are best funded in this kind of private long-term way. Is that a sort of bifurcation of how we, how we finance the sort of uh, private sectors green transition, do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's extremely interesting. And, and this is what um, all the investment banks are, are massively engaged in now. Um, they're in their investment banking departments the, 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 for several years. They've clearly realized that, the green transition is going to be one of the big drivers of mergers and acquisitions and, and of reshaping companies. Um, but there's, there's no simple pattern. Um, but, you know, what we were looking at this week was, was the, the strong uh, advantages that private funds have and, and the strong kind of running they're making at the moment. Um, but, 
you know, it's not the whole story. And and as Aidan was talking about, you know, the IPO market is still uh, open to these companies. Um, and, and, you know, some deals will go that way. But I do think that overall, um, you know, the, the, the weight of activity at the moment is, um, you know, that the upper hand is with the private uh, funds. For one thing, they're just they're just much less jittery about the sorts of things that make public markets nervous, like interest rates and 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 the Ukraine war. Yeah, and of course they've been sitting on. Uh, I mean, maybe we shouldn't be so generic, but they have been sitting on piles and piles of cash, haven't they? Yeah. For years and years and years, looking for mm. desperately looking for things to buy. And um, I suppose as more companies are taken private and taken out of the public markets, so it encourages others to do the same, perhaps. Yeah, and another advantage that private funds have is that they can develop expertise in specific areas. Um, for example, en- you know, renewable energy, or um, uh, you know, uh, you know, the bus industry. Just just to take two examples, um, they um, w- one of the uh, bankers at Credit Agricole who works on uh, power and utilities um, told me that you know the ability to do more detailed due diligence on acquisitions. It is a big advantage of the private funds. They can just take their time, employ consultants, and really research these uh, industries carefully. They're putting much more money to work in one go, and that means it's you know financially effective for them to spend money on on the due diligence. Whereas, you know, if you're an equity investor putting ten or twenty million into an IPO, you know, you just don't have the resources to. Um, put in the same amount of hours on it. And this means that the, the private funds could be more aggressive uh, when bidding for the same assets. Plus, uh, there is also something wonderfully uh, symbiotic about the fact that uh, the money going into these infrastructure funds is often from pension funds. So the idea that the ultimate owner of a bus company is a, is a pension fund, which is uh, contributed to by the ultimate users of buses, that's um, probably a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, w- one way or another, um, whatever the form of ownership these companies have, it's it's you and me that own them because that ultimately all the money is is savings of um you know uh private people through pension funds or or asset management companies or insurance companies with the exception of course of a few things like uh you know you know there's a few billionaires like uh elon musk and um you, you know a few sovereign wealth funds from saudi arabia and places but but the, but the interesting thing is that this you know your and my money is channeled in these different ways um through different kinds of asset management structure and these enable it to sort of behave in different ways and have different risk appetites and um, different return appetites and different flexibility. Yeah, so that's back to that point again, isn't it, of um, these being suitable owners of these assets because they can make those long-term commitments. But um, are they investing in particularly innovative ways? Are there sort of ways that these deals are structured that are particularly exciting or new? Well, I think um, I haven't really got any examples of that this week, but I think the, um, you know, bankers did say to me that they expect that to happen. And and they definitely know about um, that they've got things cooking, basically, that are going to be innovative. And and what this will involve is, is essentially the private funds cooperating with with the listed market in new ways. And, um, you know, one one 
possibility is you know creating vehicles in which private capital can invest alongside uh, the listed company um, so that you know you get the benefit of all the capital um, that the uh, private funds have in in large quantities um, while you know you still have the sort of listed uh, company management and and the sort of industrial expertise um, you know one interesting area is, is uh, the electric vehicle charging you know this is this is a very important part of the of the bus industry's rollout um and you know banker hsbc was pointing out to me that um you know it's it's nice and easy to just put electric charging points in in the bus depots that already exist but it's not necessarily the most efficient because they um the bus then has to travel empty all the way to the start of its route and that's sort of a waste of energy and time um, and then, you know, while the buses are all out in the day, the, the charging points are idle. So, you know, a better solution might be to sort of distribute them around the city more. They could then be used for other types of vehicle as well. Um, and, um, you know, th there's a sort of several efficiencies there. But but to create this new uh, ecosystem, if you like, you, you're going to need new sorts of relationship. And for example, you know, the electricity utilities might have to be involved, the uh, local authority. Um, and nobody quite knows how to sort of create these business models yet. Biffa um, was obviously uh, listed before and then it was taken private and then it was relisted. And now it's potentially going to be taken private again. Um, what do you think these yeah. uh, private equity, uh, what do you think this private equity company sees in in that business yeah that's a good question i mean i spoke to a public equity investor actually who owns biffa he's he's a renewables sorry not your responsible and sort of sustainable investment specialist at edentree and he, he's a bit sort of miffed actually by the the level of the offer because he sees an enormous upside in in biffa um because they are um you know, sort of reshaping the way we deal with waste. And um, as he put it, they, they're moving landfill to very much to the sort of bottom of the waste hierarchy and, you know, trying to recycle everything they can. And, uh, you know, uh, this investor was saying that, you know, in this respect, Biffer is ahead of uh, many of the companies in the US. And I think um, it's probably that, that has uh, caught the attention of um, energy capital partners, the um, private equity firm that that want to take over Biffa. It's also made some interesting investments in, you know, recycling plastic bottles. Um, so it's this sort of, um, you know, adventure into the into the future of, uh, in this case, waste that has caught the eye of this of this private equity firm, and. You know, it's not that the public market is stupid or or kind of hasn't seen the potential of this. It's just um, the, the private fund is sort of even keener to, to get hold of it. Why is that? Does it just think these th these assets are too undervalued, or uh, does it? Or do these companies? Or these sorry, do these private equity companies just need something green to put in funds where they, for example, have an obligation to invest in something green or? ESG compliant. Well, if you're going to be very cynical, you could say that yeah, they've you know they've made promises to their investors to 
to be green, you know, to put it very briefly, um, and and they've got to deliver. That that is true, um, but you know, a more sort of uh, noble way of putting that is, um, you know, they believe in the in the um, energy and green transition, and they're they're hunting for assets that are going to perform well uh, when that happens. And um, I think it's, um, you know, the it's just that they're they're willing and able to pay higher multiples for these businesses than they're necessarily trading at in the public market. And to follow the green transition and the role capital markets has to play in it, from regulation to deal making. Stay tuned to the Global Capital podcast and also read all of our coverage on globalcapital.com. It only remains for me to thank John and Aidan for joining me for the podcast and to Gerald Hayes, our editor, for putting it all together. Stay tuned for more next week from us. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 